Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Juno Beach Centers podcast. My name is Keegan Gingrich, and today's episode is a special one titled Stories from Dieppe. This episode didn't fit neatly under the umbrella of either Juno Beach and Beyond or Witnesses to History, so think of this as a bonus episode of sorts. With the 80th anniversary of the Dieppe Raid quickly approaching on August 19th, I wanted to dedicate an episode to some short stories of Canadian soldiers who were killed at Dieppe. This brief episode was inspired by our current campaign titled the He Lives Where You Live postcard campaign. Over 800 Canadians died as a result of the Dieppe Raid. When a tragedy is so large, it can be hard to remember that each of these soldiers of Dieppe had unique personalities, occupations, hobbies, and families. In 2021, the Juno Beach Centre undertook a research project to keep these names and memory of these men alive. By cross-referencing the home addresses of all those Canadians who perished at Dieppe with contemporary addresses, it became clear that about half of them still exist today. At the end of July 2022, each of these individual addresses were mailed a unique postcard that shares the name and story of the soldier of Dieppe who lived there at the time of his enlistment. To learn more, check out our interactive map to learn whether a soldier from Dieppe who lost their life had lived in your area, or even perhaps at your home address. A link will be provided in the description of today's episode. Before we get started, I also want to send a big thank you to Bob Sears, who has done most of the heavy lifting for this episode. The majority of these stories are a combination of the Directorate of History and Heritage files, as well as service files and research done by Bob from his own collection. Without his research into many of these soldiers, this episode would not be possible, and he has our sincere thanks for being able to share such powerful stories with you today. Also, a big thank you goes out to Jeff Cooney for providing this final story of today's episode, which is also quite powerful. Let's start with a short story on a First Nations man who was killed at Dieppe. Despite attempting some further research here, Bob's own research has been the most information available, so we're going to roll with that. Maxwell Jacob King was born on the Six Nations Reserve, south of Brantford, Ontario, on the 24th of April, 1917. He resided in Hagersville, Ontario, and before the war had served with the Dufferin and Haldeman Rifles of Canada in Brantford. An imposing figure at six feet, one and a half inches, Maxwell enrolled as a private in the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry on 13th of April, 1940. Three months after enrolling, he was on his way to the United Kingdom. Maxwell obtained permission to marry and he and Ida Margaret Scherer from Switzerland were married on 17th of July, 1942. On the 31st of January, 1943, a son that Maxwell would never see was born. The son was named Maxwell Elliot. Maxwell for his father, and Elliot after Maxwell's brother, who was also in the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry, and became a prisoner of war after the raid. Maxwell was killed in battle and was buried at the Dieppe Canadian War Cemetery in Utu-Sumer, France. Ida came to Canada with her son and settled on the Six Nations Reserve, where she spent the rest of her life, but she remarried in 1946. The next two stories are unique because they have one thing in common. Each of the soldiers who was killed were veterans of the First World War. Let's start with Herbert Victor Pogue, who was born in Hamilton in 1897. 
He served with the infantry and engineers in France during the Great War, and he received a gunshot wound to his right wrist. But military service gets into some men's blood. So it was with Herbert who served with the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry between the wars. It was men like Herbert with their long background of service and experience that could contribute so much to the formation of a modern fighting unit. Eight days before Canada officially declared war, Herbert was already enrolled as a lieutenant. By November 1939, he was promoted to captain, and he served as quartermaster, and then his steady experienced hand saw him employed as the adjutant. The evacuation order having been given, Herbert made it to a departing landing craft, but he was hit and started to sink, so he returned to the beach. It was there he was hit by machine gun fire. He was to succumb to his wounds on the 22nd of August. Besides his wife, Herbert left behind two sons, the eldest of whom had joined the Royal Canadian Air Force. Herbert was 45 years old, and he is buried in the Dieppe Canadian War Cemetery in Outre-Sumer, France. Another Great War veteran was Captain Theodore Marie Insinger, who was born in the Netherlands on the 28th of July, 1895. During the Great War, he had served in the Royal Netherlands Field Artillery, and in 1933, Hitler obviously became Chancellor of Germany. Bob wonders here whether this is a factor in Theodore choosing to emigrate to Canada in 1934. He settled in Calgary, Alberta, and joined the Calgary Highlanders. He was a radio engineer and spoke French, German, Dutch, Flemish, and English. Upon arriving in England, he was identified as a good choice for intelligence work, though his English was described as limited. The Dieppe raid saw Theodore aboard the command ship HMS Calpe as an intelligence officer for the raid commander, Major General Ham Roberts. The ship received a direct hit and Captain Insinger was killed, but his body was never recovered. Captain Insinger is remembered on the Memorial to the Missing at Brookwood Military Cemetery in Woking, Surrey, United Kingdom. At age 47, he was the oldest person killed on the raid. The next one is a story of an American at Dieppe, who was also a Canadian, so I'll preface with that. William Stewart Milford Jacobs was born in Tonawanda, New York in 1907. The family spent time in Saskatchewan before moving to the Toronto area. In 1931, he enlisted in the Royal Regiment of Canada and rose through the ranks. He enlisted with the Royal Regiment of Canada Canadian Active Service Force on the 6th of September, 1939. His civilian job had been a prison guard, and his prior service meant that upon enrollment, he was made an acting staff sergeant. By March of 1941, he was a confirmed company sergeant major, and a year later he would qualify for the efficiency medal. The medal was for 12 years of efficient service, war service counted as double, and so his qualifying service was over 13 years. Company Sergeant Major Jacobs was awarded a mention in dispatches for gallant and distinguished service. Warrant Officer 2nd Class Jacobs died on the day of the attack, 19th of August, 1942, and left behind both a wife and a daughter. He is buried in the Dieppe Canadian War Cemetery in Outre-Sumer, France. This next story is a really fascinating one, and I'm very shocked at how many times this particular individual was able to attempt this feat. So we're going to talk about William Anderson Miller, who was born in Edmonton. He was a member of the local militia after high school and belonged to the Canadian Officer Training Corps while at university. He graduated with a Bachelor of Engineering in Mining Engineering. William enrolled in Montreal in 1940, and he expressed his willingness to be employed in tunneling or explosives. 
He was chosen to command a team of engineers for Operation Rudder or Jubilee that was to land on Red Beach. One of their tasks was the destruction of port facilities. Many of the team, burdened by heavy loads, drowned. Lieutenant Miller was witnessed leading his team to safety, attending to their wounds, and directing their defense while still attempting to complete his mission. For these actions, he was awarded a mention in dispatches. Taken as a prisoner of war, he made his first escape from the train taking him to the POW camp in Eichstadt, Germany. Sent to Willisbad Prison, he escaped again, but was recaptured in three days. Returned to Eichstadt, he partnered with British officers in tunneling out of the prison. Captured for the third time, he was labeled a persistent escapee. He was now transferred to the highest security POW prison at Kolditz Castle, but on 28th of January, 1944, he escaped from Kolditz and was recaptured two weeks later. He is believed to have been executed when he was shot on the 15th of July, 1944, where he was cremated and his ashes were scattered. Lieutenant Miller was recommended for a military cross, but this decoration cannot be awarded posthumously. The proposed citation read in part, among prisoners who have shown great determination, ingenuity, skill, and daring in many and varied attempts to escape, there were few who could equal Lieutenant Miller's record of four successful breaks in a period of 17 months. Miller is remembered on the memorial to the missing at Brookwood Military Cemetery in Woking, Surrey, United Kingdom. Miller Lake in the Northwest Territories is named after him. We have two more brief stories for you, and this next one will be very quick, but it's very interesting. This one's called The First Casualties, and this one's also written by Bob. On the 18th of August, 1942, soldiers in many English South Coast ports were preparing for battle. For safety reasons, the number 36 grenade and its fuse are shipped separately, but one of a soldier's tasks is to fuse their hand grenades. This entailed removing the base plug, cleaning out the packing grease, and inserting the fuse and replacing the base plug. Private Harry Smith was on board the HMS Duke of Wellington, along with other soldiers of his Black Watch platoon. Momentarily distracted by another task, he inserted a second fuse in the grenade, which activated the fuse. An attempt to chuck the grenade out of an open porthole failed, and it bounced back inside. The subsequent explosion killed Private Emily Philippe Williams and wounded 18 others. Private Williams was the first fatality of a raid that had yet to take place. Private Walter James, one of the 18 wounded, received a head injury. He was to die of this injury on the 2nd of September, 1942. Both Privates Williams and James are buried in Brookwood Military Cemetery, Woking, Surrey, United Kingdom. When looking through our records on the locations of those who died at Dieppe, I found a few interesting entries and one particular that had two similarities. First, they were pilots of the RCAF who had died at Dieppe. This is significant because only 12 pilots of the Allied Air Forces were killed at Dieppe and four of them served with Britain's Royal Air Force, while another eight served with the RCAF. Of these eight, however, three men who were killed were from 403 RCAF squadron. I thought this was really interesting, especially in the cases of John Edwin Gardner and Norman Montier, who were both buried beside one another at St. Alban Le Coff graveyard in France. This entry is a combination of some research done by myself, as well as Bob Sears, and I thank him once again for being so diligent with these entries. 
Norman Montier was born on November 18th, 1922 in Burnley, Lancaster, England, but his family moved to Dartmouth, Nova Scotia by April of 1931. Enlisting in 1940, Norman would go through training throughout 1941 before receiving his pilot's flying badge on October 4th, 1941, and being deployed to England. After serving as a part of 52 Operational Training Unit for a few months, he was assigned to 403 Squadron. John Edwin Gardner was the son of Honorable James Garfield Gardner, an MP, and Christy Violet Gardner of Ottawa, Ontario, and was born on July 8th, 1919, in Lemberg, Saskatchewan. He enlisted on November 19, 1940, in Toronto, Ontario, having received many recommendations for service from a number of his father's colleagues at the time attending the University of Toronto for aeronautics. During the landing at Dieppe, two Spitfires from Squadron 403 from RAF Manston, providing cover from the Luftwaffe, collided and crashed at St. Aubin Le Coff, five miles southeast of the Dieppe landing. These two pilots were John Edwin Gardner and Norman Montier. Both pilots were killed in the midair collision, and while this information was unknown at the time, both pilots were buried side by side at Saint Aubin. John Edwin Gardner and Norman Montier were each posthumously awarded the following citations the 1939 45 Star, the Air Crew Europe Star, the War Medal, the Canadian Volunteer Service Medal, and CLASP. They were also posthumously awarded the RCAF Operational Wings in recognition of gallant service in action against the enemy, the 27th of May, 1946. I also want to read a letter that was sent by John Gardner's father to the Minister of National Defense for Air in 1946. This can be found on John's Veteran Affairs Canada page. February 18th, 1946. My dear colleague, you will recall that in August you wrote to me to say that it had been found that our son, pilot officer John Edwin Gardner, was buried in the churchyard at St. Aubin Le While over in Britain, I visited Dieppe on two occasions and obtained the story of the battle in which they lost their lives. I also flew over the site on my way back from Paris, and I think I have a very clear story of what happened. I have put the story down in written form and I am sending you a copy. It has occurred to me that the official story of this incident can be had if some official of your organization over there were to go out and check everything which is available. The persons who knew most about it are the young fellow, M. Dunay André of Saint-Nicolas-d'Almont, who was on the scene within half an hour and who witnessed the scene from a distance and who said that all three planes were shot down, and Mr. Maurice Lesseau, who operates the farm over which the battle took place. His statement would indicate that the cause of these two planes crashing was the fact that they came together during the battle, and the propeller of Montier's plane cut the fuselage of Edwin's into strips and finally took the tail off, the two of them crashing into the field. As near as I could make out, he attributed the incident to the fact that Montier's plane had been previously damaged by shooting from the ground. I'm inclined to think, however, that the accident was finally caused by Edwin having been hit by the German which put his plane out of control as well, with the result that the two of them came together and went down. I would like the story which I have been able to piece together placed on the records until such time as an official investigation can, if possible, be made in the story told. It would appear that the two of them are entitled to credit for one German plane, and that the squadron is entitled to one added to the record which they have. This in itself is not of great importance, but it is, I think, important that wherever the record of what happened can be attained, 
It ought to be obtained with regard to all those who lost their lives in battle. Yours sincerely, James G. Gardner. But there was also one more member of 403 Squadron who was killed that day. LeClaire Allerthorne Walker. Often called Claire, he was born on the 22nd of June, 1918, in Norwich, Ontario, Canada. His family moved to the USA in 1920 with just two children, but returned back to Norwich in 1932 with six. During his high school years, Claire was a member of the Cadet Corps and studied mechanical engineering at Toronto University in the fall of 1938, and at the same time also enrolled in the Canadian Officer Training Corps, Regiment Number 6768. Claire enlisted in the RCAF in the summer of 1940 and was called into active duty on November 4, 1940. After basic training in 1941, leading aircraftsman Walker was posted to Number 12 Elementary Flying Training School at Godrich, Ontario. His brother recalls an instance of Claire flying the tiger moth here. This writer, Claire's brother, Bud, recalls very vividly the day in the spring of 1941 when Claire flew his tiger moth over their home in Norwich, performing numerous aerobatics. I immediately climbed up the 80-foot radio tower located in our yard, which our father had built years earlier, to get a closer view of Claire. When he saw me, he flew very low in what looked to me extremely close to the tower, as I could see him in the aircraft very plainly. All through this, our mother was waving vigorously and yelling for him to stop. After completing his advanced flying training on Spitfires in Scotland, he was posted to 403 Squadron by December of 1941 as a flight sergeant, before being subsequently promoted to flight officer in May. His brother makes note of another instance of funny business here. On the 14th of April 1942, a special news report appeared in the Canadian newspapers titled, Ontario Flyers Failed to Scare Britain's Prime Minister. The article reads in part, Three flyers, including Flight Sergeant L.A. Walker, failed to scare Winston Churchill, though they dived their planes to within 50 feet of him. They were engaged in attacking a theoretical gun position, and came down from 2,000 feet to a spot being inspected by Churchill and cabinet ministers. The ministers scattered like rabbits, but not the Prime Minister, Walker reported. He just stood there while we flew clean over his head. He was the only one of the group who stayed there. After flying numerous sorties over Europe on 19th of August 1942, Claire with other members of his squadron set out at 6.45am to act as an escort for ships carrying out landing operations at Dieppe, France. He became separated from the remainder of his section and was last seen heading inland beyond Dieppe. In March of 1945, his brother indicates that several reports from the number one missing research and inquiry unit of the Royal Canadian Air Force in England were received by the Department of National Defense for Air in Ottawa. The report states the following. A Spitfire aircraft, EN-850, crashed at the village of Varanville, France. Mr. Poitevin, a witness in the case from Varanville, stated that it was he and his friends who actually recovered the dead pilot's body. The body was headless, and the head was never found. The left arm was found in an oat field, and his identity disc was taken by the Germans. However, in spite of this, Claire's name was found inside his jacket pocket. Poitevin also states that the body was first buried in the Cimetière des Vertus at Saint-Aubin-Saucy, near Dieppe. A German doctor came to remove the body after about eight days, but failed to do so. The body was removed by the service technique of the mayor of Dieppe and buried in grave 706 of the Canadian Military Cemetery at Utu-Sumer at Dieppe. 
The grave was later renumbered and is now designated Row F, Grave 60. I want to thank Walker's brother, Bud, for posting this on the RCAF number 403 Squadron blog. Uh, It's a very in-detail description, and I was very thankful to find it. So all credits go to him for the telling of this story. I will apologize for my French pronunciations, as they are not as good as they could be, but I did my best, and that's what counts. This last story has shades of the movie Saving Private Ryan, where James Ryan was the last of his four brothers to be uh, left alive in the war. This is a Canadian version, though, and this is the story of Mrs. Bernadette Rivet, who lost two of her sons in battle. And I'm going to read that for you now. On August 19th, 1942, her sons, Private Leon Maxime Rivet and Private Alphonse Cecil Rivet, were killed in action during the Battle of Dieppe while serving with the Essex Scottish Regiment. On November 23rd, 1944, Another of her sons, Private Lawrence Rivet, was also killed in action while serving with the Essex Scottish Regiment. Two other sons of Mrs. Rivet, Raymond and Edward, also served in the Second World War. Raymond was taken prisoner for three years. When Edward enlisted shortly after Lawrence was killed, Mrs. and Mr. Rivet drew up a petition to get him out of the service, and while this succeeded in having him discharged, he rejoined a month later. This is something that shows both the sacrifice that was made by so many families and also the willingness for so many soldiers to keep carrying on despite the the losses um, of siblings and family members. Um, Of her five sons, she lost three at the time because of the war. And even in the case of Lawrence, he wanted to go back in and continue fighting despite the loss of his two brothers, ultimately losing his life as well. Something that uh, must have been extremely hard to go through. And I just thought this is a really excellent story to tell. There's not a whole lot of information, um, but it is still uh, heart-wrenching to, to say the least. And I really wanted to include that. These are obviously just some of the stories of those uh, who were killed and also survived at Dieppe. And there are many, many more stories that have not been told um, or have been told and we just haven't had access to them yet. But it's really quite striking to see how many different walks of life people come from um, in serving, especially during the Second World War. Uh, It's quite amazing to see how many soldiers gave up their lives uh, in sacrifice of a better world. So I really wanted to draw that to your attention today. And I hope that you found these stories interesting. There will be an accompanying blog post coming with this as well with some photos. A lot of these are from Veterans Affairs Canada, um, but some of them were found online as well. And I invite you to take a look and see some of the faces of these soldiers that I've mentioned today. Thank you very much for tuning in and let us know if you've received a postcard from us. We would love to hear about it. Uh, You can contact us on any of our social media or on our website. We love to see your photos of these, and we hope that you find a way to commemorate the sacrifices made at the Dieppe Raid on its 80th anniversary. Thanks so much for listening, and take care.